Today is Compassion Sunday. Churches all around the world recognizing the work of Compassion International and and inviting the involvement of uh, people in our fellowships to uh, to do something about about poverty in the world, specifically where children are related. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want you to understand something that I'm beginning to realize in the formation of, of the follower of Jesus Christ, in the formation of the heart of a Christian. God gives us spiritual gifts, and He creates people uniquely for unique tasks and unique callings. But the reality of how He forms our hearts, all of us, is He doesn't call us to one thing. He may gift you to one area, to one specific ministry, but He calls us to a number of things, and the more our hearts are formed after Jesus, the more we recognize that. What I mean by that is the last several weeks we've looked at several different things. We talked about being watchmen on the wall, uh, watchmen for Israel. And some might say, okay, well, Rick, then what you're saying is that... uh, God has called some people to be watchers for Israel, to care about the Jewish people. I'm saying no, He's called all of us to. Last week we talked about being forerunners of the gathering storm. And and some would say, oh, well, Rick, so you're saying that some people are called to be evangelists preceding the coming of Jesus. I'm saying no, He's called all of us to. It's not a, a one or the other thing. This morning in talking about the poor and the cry of the afflicted around the world, this is not a call just for some of us. It is a call for all of us. And so you see, the reality is there should not be a single Christian person in the world sitting back going, I just don't know what to do for the Lord. I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do because I haven't been called in any of these areas. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you have been called to all of these areas. And this is the formation of the Christian life. Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. He also healed. He also cared about the poor. He also warned of what was coming. His heart broke for Israel. And God has given each one of us, as His children, the capacity to do far more than what we are doing. And I'm talking about rolled up sleeves, hands to the work, following after Jesus. Not some spiritual tripe where we sit in our churches and feel good about, oh, we have some new understanding. I'm talking about absolutely practical measures of our faith. Job chapter 34, verse 21. For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore he knows their works and he overthrows them in the night and they're crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a public place because they turned aside from following Him and had no regard for any of His ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to Him and that He might hear the cry of the afflicted. When He keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when He hides His face, who then can behold Him? That is in regard to both nation and man so that the godless men would not rule nor be snares of the people. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will not do it again. Shall He recompense on your terms? 
Because you have rejected, for you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Lord Jesus, I am praying for radical transformation of our hearts and our lives. A spiritual transformation, Jesus, that affects our physical being. It affects our day-to-day activity. Father, it incurs upon the things that we choose to do with our money, with our time, with our resources. That we would truly be followers after You. Not in word only, but in deed, in action, in work. That we would be tireless. Father, I thank You the last few weeks especially for bringing out such hands-on practical things that we as Your children can do. And I pray that You will open all of our eyes this morning to the possibilities before us and engage us, Lord Jesus, in Your work until You come. Holy Spirit, I pray You will pierce our hearts with this truth this morning and give us a passion for the things that You have a passion for. Be it Israel, Lord, be it the lost, or be it the suffering poor of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was no stranger to controversy. It's one of the things that attracts me to Him, so many people to Him, is He said it as it was. He turned the world on its ear. He often spoke in completely countercultural terms, things that spun people around. Otherworldly, thought-provoking language was the language of Jesus. And we enjoy that, you know, so long as it doesn't offend our delicate sensibilities. As long as Jesus is offending somebody else, going after somebody else, we sit back and go, yeah, Jesus preaching on, bro. That's awesome. But the moment it makes us uncomfortable, it's like, what are you talking about, Lord? Come on, give me some space. I'm doing my best. On the front end of the most tumultuous week of his life, the last week before his crucifixion, Jesus is there. He was in Jerusalem. And he's ruffling feathers right and left. But he ruffled the feathers of those closest to him in a very interesting story. John chapter 12, verse 1. Let's read this to you. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. I love that. Lazarus reclining, not because he was dead, but because he's just there with Jesus. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. I love that John just gives it to us straight. Here's the heart of Judas. He didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to sell it so he could get some money for himself. Therefore Jesus said, verse 7, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And then he said these words, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That's not what I would have expected from Jesus. 
You always have the poor with you. <laughs> poor people everywhere. You don't always have me. So let's focus on me. It's all about me. Now, if anyone else had said that, we would have said, you're self-centered. There are people who could have used the money from that. Even with right hearts. And there were other disciples there who were offended by what happened. Offended that, that Mary would waste that perfume on the feet of Jesus. It bothered many of the apostles. And Jesus, He makes it all about Himself. I wouldn't have expected that, wouldn't He? Shouldn't He say, you know, you're right, Judas. Mary, what were we thinking? Quick, mop up this waste, wasteful display of affection. Put it back in a vial. Let's get out on the street and sell this and give it to someone who really needs it. My feet are fine. But He doesn't. Jesus turns all the focus back to Himself and says again, hey, the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. What was he saying? What was the point? I mean, Jesus is the one who blessed the poor and the hungry. Why the change of heart? Well, it wasn't a change of heart, as you probably know. It wasn't a cold-hearted statement of fact. There was a clear recognition of a stark reality that none of us like to face. And you know the feeling. You're flipping the channels and one of those commercials come on. A starving child and you can't flip fast enough to get past it. You know, as you sit there with your bowl of ice cream or your chips and your Coke. Oh, I don't want to see that tonight. It's too much reality for me. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. Let me give you some statistics this morning. According to World Bank, 1.4 billion people on planet Earth live below the poverty line of $1.24 a day. That's one in six people. Roughly six billion people plus on the planet. So one in six live below the poverty line. $1.24 a day, that's less than $500 a year that one-sixth of all people in, in the world live below. <coughs> It states that roughly half of Earth's population, that is 3 billion people, live on $2.50 a day. That's less than $1,000 a year. And we're so worried about recession in the United States. And I don't mean to, you know, I disdain those of you who have struggled, uh, who have lost jobs. I, I understand that. The Father is aware of that. But, but when we look at the world around us, how many of us could even survive on $1,000 a year? And yet, half of the world's population does. Globalissues.org, which is a, a rather uh, earth-muffin kind of a, a location to go. I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. But the statistics are legitimate. They quote that there are roughly 2 billion children in the world today. So of the 6 billion people, 2 billion are children, and half of the children of the world's population today live in poverty. Over a billion kids. 640 million have no adequate shelter. 400 million have no access to just clean water. 270 million have no access to health services. 10.6 million died in 2003 alone before reaching the age of 5. 24,000 children will die today because of poverty in the world. Try to wrap your head around that thought. 24,000 kids. That's one child in every 3.6 seconds. Or to put maybe a, a more understandable number together, 16 to 17 children dying every minute. That's about the size of one of our Sunday school classes. 
every minute because of poverty in the world. That's equal to the death toll of the Haitian earthquake or the Asian tsunami happening every other week. Globalissues.org says the silent killer is poverty, resulting in easily preventable diseases and illnesses and other related causes. In spite of the scale of this daily ongoing catastrophe, it rarely manages to achieve, much less sustain, primetime headline coverage. When was the last time you heard any of this even mentioned on the news? You hear about war. You hear about death politicized, but you don't hear about the tragic ongoing death of children in the world. I could go on quoting statistics all morning. But unfortunately, what statistics tend to do in us is produce more guilt than action. They just kind of make us feel bad. You know, they jar us for a moment and we go, Oh, that's terrible. Where are we going for lunch? And it's gone pretty quickly. I don't want to just produce guilt or shame this morning. That's not the point. But Jesus was right. The poor we will always have with us. This morning again, we're going to stay with Elihu. One last time in the book of Job. Though I was personally ready to move on to the fantastic speech of God in chapter 38. We'll get there beginning Wednesday night. It's amazing. But part of the reason I draw back to this is we want to deal with this issue of what Elihu calls out. He says the cry of the poor come to him and that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. But I want to warn you, this is a difficult section of Scripture. I went over this again and again and again, and even Wednesday night when we talked through it. It's difficult to grasp exactly the language, what he's saying. Partially it's a tricky passage of Hebrew poetry to translate correctly into English, but it's also challenging content-wise. But it's worth our attention. You see, today, the typical accusation of the non-believing, non-Christian world around us, typical accusation, we talked about this Wednesday, is the incrimination of injustice. If there is a God, people will say, where's the justice? How can he allow the poor to always be with you? If there's truly a God, a benevolent, kind, gracious, compassionate God, why all this poverty? And Job laid out that very question. If you look back a few chapters in Job 24, Job himself said in verse 1, Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know Him not see His days? Some remove boundary marks, they seize and devour flocks, they drive away the donkeys of the orphans, they take the widow's ox for a pledge, they push the needy aside from the road, the poor of the land are made to hide themselves together. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity, as bread for their children in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field and glean the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They're wet with the mountain rains and hug the rock for want of a shelter. Others snatch the orphan from the breast and against the poor, they take a pledge. They cause the poor to go about naked without clothing. They take away the sheaves from the hungry. Within the walls they produce oil. They tread wine presses, but they thirst. From the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out. And then Job says, Yet God does not pay attention to folly. This is one of the arguments of Job. As he begins to shift away from himself momentarily there, and look at the world around him, he says, And there's injustice everywhere. It's not just with me. 
And God's not paying attention to all this. Now listen, Job displays a real heart for the poor. Something you need to know about this man is he loved people. He was an incredibly compassionate man. He spent what he had before all this loss. He spent what he had on recovering life to people who are struggling and, and distressed. And in describing his own response to the problem of poverty, even back in his day, Job said in Job 29, verse 12, I delivered the poor who cried out for help, and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, that I made the widow's heart sing for joy. He says in Job 29.16, I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. Yet, he complains, God does not pay attention to folly. Yeah, the poor is always with us. Why isn't God doing something about this? He obviously is detached. Are, Are you sure, Job? Really? Listen again to the words of Elihu. Go back to chapter 34. Let's walk this through. Verse 21. If you want to take notes to follow through this, the first thing Elihu describes here is God as a perceptive ruler. He says, no, Job, you're wrong in this. God is a perceptive ruler. Verse 21, His eyes are upon the ways of a man, and He sees all His steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves, for he does not need to consider a man further than he should go before God in judgment. You see, God doesn't have to even judge because He already knows. He already knows based on our behavior. He already knows our hearts. And He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore He knows their works. And He overthrows them in the night and they're crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a public place or literally in the place of the ones seeing. In the wide open. God sees what's going on. He is completely aware. While we're changing channels, God is focused. While we're skipping out and trying to ignore the reality of the world around us, God is seeing all of it. He's completely aware. And don't think for a moment He's not going to do or He's not doing something about it. Now that's something that oftentimes people in the world miss, even in the church sometimes. We think, well, isn't God going to do anything? He is. He is active and at work in the world today. I'll show you some ways in just a moment. The Psalm 34 verse 18 tells us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 72 verse 12, He will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Why? Because we have a perceptive ruler. God knows what's going on. We have a perceptive ruler who will respond, and who does respond to the needs. The blame of the cycle of poverty, gang, it does not fall at the feet of God. It falls in the hands of man. While people are trying to shrug it off and blame God for poverty in the world, here's where the problem is. Not just with me, but with mankind. It is our problem. It is caused by us. Our hungers, our appetites, our greed, our sin is the bottom line reason for poverty in the world today. But secondly, note this, a providential reason. A providential reason. We have a perceptive ruler. Secondly, a providential reason. God promised to provide 
to the point that no one should ever have to go hungry. Now watch this, it's fascinating. Why do people go hungry? If God promised, if He said, and He did, and I'll show you, if God promised to provide such that no one should ever hunger ever in the world, why do they? Here's the reason why, verse 27. Because they turned aside from following Him and had no regard for any of His ways. So that they caused the cry of the poor to come to Him and that He might hear the cry of the afflicted. Because they turned aside from following Him. Elihu nails it. That's why there's poverty. Because honestly, if we listened to the Lord and if we did what He asked us to do, the simple things that God laid out before us, if we just did those things, there would be no world poverty. Rick, that's an awfully bold statement. Let me just point out to you a few things. That if we did, if we followed, would cause poverty on planet Earth to cease. God said to the people of Israel in Exodus 22, verse 25, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him, you shall not charge him interest. So one of God's standards is, lend with no self-interest. Don't lend seeking to get something back more than what you offered. Don't lend thinking, hey, I can make a few extra bucks on this. Just lend. If you're going to lend, better yet, just give it. But if you're going to lend and you need to eventually give it back, don't charge interest. He said in Leviticus 19, verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. A second standard of the Lord. Not only does He say lend with no self-interest, He says consume. Go ahead, be consumers. But compassionately. Don't consume to the very edge of the field. You know, go ahead and harvest up, but leave the corners. Leave what's already fallen on the ground. Allow the poor to wander through the fields and pick up the gleanings. Which, by the way, you might recall, that's what Ruth was doing when she met Boaz. She was impoverished. She had nothing. But God's, God's welfare, God's plan, His benevolence was, hey, if you're hungry, you can go through any of the fields and pick up what's left over. It's there for you. I will provide that. How about this one? Leviticus 25, verse 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. God's standard? Family. Take care of family. This is huge because we don't do this in America anymore. We stick mom or dad as they're aging in an old folks home. Now, some of you may have had to do that for a reason. I'm not saying you're bad for doing that. You are if you stick them there and you've never seen them since. (laughs) Family take care of family. Family be responsible. You know one of the first questions that we ask when someone comes for help, for financial help from, from our fellowship, is there family that can help you? Is there a mom or dad, a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter? Is there someone around who can help? Because you know the biblical prescription? Family care for family. Look after family. Love family. Even if they annoy you, take care of them. God's standard. He says in Leviticus 25, verse 35, Now in the case of a countryman of yours who becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Another of God's standards. Make poverty your problem. I mean, these are so simple. Don't lend with interest. Consume, but consume compassionately. Family, take care of family. Make poverty your problem. 
You involve yourself in it. If we did even those four things, and there are dozens of ways that God told Israel, and by extension the world, to handle poverty, and no one's paying any attention to any of it. But if we just did those four things, what would change in the world? How much less poverty would there be? People on the street, children with nothing to eat. I love this line from Dickens' Christmas Carol. When Scrooge says to Marley, the ghost Marley, he says, You were always a good businessman, Jacob. You remember what he says back? Marley says, Mankind should be our business. Right on. If mankind was the business of mankind, if caring for each other was our primary concern, I guarantee you, poverty would cease from the world. You've probably heard, but there is more than enough there's more than enough produce in the world to feed every time, everybody and many times over. Do you realize that 70% of our wheat production in the United States of America goes to feed cows so that we can have McDonald's? 70% of our wheat is feeding bovines. It just, it's mind-boggling to think about. God calls Israel to care for the poor among them, to make it their responsibility. And again, we're just scratching the surface, but it's God's perfect prescription for purging poverty from the world. Listen to this, Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast which I chose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness? To uh, undo the bands of the yoke? And let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to breathe the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him? and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. He said that to the Pharisees. I don't want your religion. You know... Showing up here every Sunday, showing up on Wednesdays, involving yourself in your church, man, that's good stuff. But that's not what God's looking for out of us in the world. That's not impressive, you know, to the Father. Well, here's my attendance card, God. I was in church every single Sunday. What did you do for people who were struggling around you? What did you do the rest of the time with your life? Check this out. This is amazing to me. So absolutely sure was Moses of God's prescription that he said these words in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4 Moses said however there will be no poor among you there will be no poor among you since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised you. And you'll lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you'll rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. You see, Moses had the benefit of reading the commandments before he shared them with the people. And in reading them, he said, this is it. If we just do this, there's not going to be any poverty. Israel, listen, we have an answer. There won't be anyone poor anymore. It's over. It's done. 
If we will do what God has called us to do. But that kind of compassion takes guts. You know, when Jesus said, Go, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, it's that great Greek word. I love the word splachna. It's just fun to say. Splachna. What does splachna mean? It means guts. It, it's the perfect word for it. Yeah, I got kicked in the splachna today. <laughs> I ate something wrong. My splachna is a little messed up. I mean, it's, it's perfect. But it means compassion because compassion takes guts. It takes a willingness to feel, to leave the TV on the channel for just a little bit longer so it starts to impact and affect your heart. To walk down the road and be willing to see face to face poverty and sorrow and the afflicted and struggling people. To stop trying to sugarcoat and whitewash our world, but to get into the reality of what is going on around us. Compassion takes guts. Moses says there doesn't have to be any poverty whatsoever. So why is there? Because, as Elihu said, they turned aside from following him. And they had no regard for any of his ways. I'm going to give you an opinion here. It's just my opinion. I have a feeling some of you will agree. The further away from God America wanders, the more poverty we're going to see in our country. Why? Because God's going to strike us? No, because we're not going to care. The further away we get from God, the less we're going to care about the poor, the more selfish and self-centered people in America are going to get. The more we try to shut down prayer, the more we take God out of the marketplace, the more we remove faith from our country, the more people are going to suffer and be afflicted and struggle. And it was funny to me, Newsweek's front cover this week, some of you may have read it, America is back! Really? You know, there are some other claims which would undermine this. Uh, Jobless claims, which rose this month to 484,000, which is the highest level since February. America's back. Mortgage foreclosures are higher now than they've been in five years. Higher this month. Why is all this going on? When we're not listening. When we as a nation are turning away from God, our concerns turn away from His concerns, and His concerns are the poor and the afflicted and those in need all around us. Again, God has provided all we need. The question is, are we going to function His way, or are we going to function our way? And that runs both personally as well as nationally. Look at verse 29. When He keeps quiet, who then can condemn? When he hides his face, who then can behold him? Elihu is saying, look, you say he's not responding, but you're not even doing what he asks you to do. If you do what he asks you to do, you would see his response. That's why you don't hear from God. That's why you don't see the Lord's hand, because you're not even paying attention. You're not doing what he asks you to do in the first place. Number three, in your notes, a public reaction. People cry out, why doesn't God do something? Why does God remain quiet or hide His face in the face of world poverty? They say, we don't see Him, therefore He must not be doing anything. Or we don't hear Him, therefore He must be disengaged. Not true. Not true. Verse 30 tells us so that godless men would not rule nor be snares of the people. Now this is where it gets tricky in the passage. So that God, so He's quiet so that godless people would not rule. And so that they would not be snares to the people. What exactly is he saying? 
Elihu is saying this. He's saying what you call the silence of God, I call grace. What you call, what you call the hiddenness of God, I call patience. Truth of the matter is, it is the world's own godlessness that is a snare for the world. It's the world's own godlessness that causes the problems that we see. And I've shared this before, but the people of our country cry out hope and change every single election cycle. (laughs) Doesn't it get old to you? You just know the sign's going to come up. Hope and change. Oh, he's the hope and change candidate. Because four years ago, I thought that guy was. Apparently not. (laughs) So now we got the... This is the real hope and change guy. And you know what we do? It's, it's, It's hysterical. What we do when we want hope and change is we look for another political leader. As if. As if there's any one human being on planet Earth that can bring the hope and change that all of us are longing for. Gang, the answer will never be with godless men. And I'm not just pointing to one particular administration. The hope and change is never with godless man. It is only with the Lord. He's the one who can bring hope and change. And only in all of us both individual and nation, turning to the Father, will we ever see any kind of hope and change? People are often dissuaded from Christianity because of Christians. Because of the humanity part of it. I I had a conversation, Russ and I were talking about this just the other day. People who, they say, you know what, yeah, but I... I hear what you're saying to me, but I know so-and-so who's supposedly a Christian, and I know what they do, and it's bogus. Let me just encourage you, if you hear that from somebody, and this is just a little side note, I'm going to give you this for free this morning, okay, you don't have to pay for this. If someone says to you, this person or that person or this pastor or that church is why I'm not a Christian, you know what you need to say to them? Don't let the foolishness of man keep you from the salvation of God. Don't let some idiot pastor over here who obviously doesn't know what he's doing, don't let him be the standard by which you choose Jesus. Let Jesus be the standard for Jesus. Let God be the standard for God. Someone says, Rick, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, you're right, we are. Absolutely, thank you for pointing that out. We're all aware of that. We are, we're sinners. The only hope here is the hope of the Holy Spirit among us. The only love you're going to feel here is because God wants you to feel love. So we don't put our hope in godless men. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. It's only one reason in my mind for putting confidence in any human being, and that is their Christ-likeness. You know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay, that I can do. I can follow someone who's following Jesus. When they're not, I'm not following you anymore. Because I'm going to keep following Jesus. And if you're going to veer to the right, I'm going to continue going where Jesus is. If you veer to the left, I want to go where Jesus is. And if I, as a pastor, ever veer right or left or get weird on you, go somewhere else. Please, follow Jesus. And not the teachings of a particular church. And, well, I could go on and on about that. We just need to stop blaming God while looking to man for the answers. It's a huge problem for us. It's God's fault! And we'll start trying to find Mr. Hope and change. So why isn't God saying anything? Because no one's asking Him. Why should he respond? No one's saying a thing to him. Now note this. Those who are seeking God regarding poverty are 
getting answers. Those who are asking God for relief and ways that they can help in this world are getting answers. Verse 28 again tells us, The cry of the poor come to Him. He might hear, He hears the cry of the afflicted. It's getting to Him. How does that work? He raises up men like Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce, who in 1950 founded World Vision the largest U.S.-based international relief organization in the world. Pierce also founded another relief organization in 1970 called Samaritan's Purse. One guy. One guy said, okay, Lord, I'm seeing poverty around me. Can we do something about this? And the Lord said, yeah, Bob, get going. And Bob said, cool. World vision begins. And in a stirring of his heart, he says, cool, again, Samaritan's Purse begins. Two organizations that are doing massive, massive relief work in the world. Why? Because God stirred a heart. And he does. He is engaged in the world. The Lord calls men like Everett Swanson. Everett Swanson began to care for Korean war orphans back in 1952. Everett Swanson's faithful work began to grow and burgeon into feeding, caring for, and bringing Christ Jesus to over a million children worldwide through Compassion International. Because one man said, I see a hungry child here in Korea in the midst of war. I'm going to do something about that. God's stirring in the heart. He stirs the hearts of people like G. Douglas Young. Perhaps some of you have on your shelves at home Young's Bible Dictionary. G. Douglas Young began Bridges for Peace in 1976. And we talked about that recently. Or how about in 2010 when he called a young lady named Rachel Daly to go to Ghana. I want to encourage you all to write this down. If you've got a pen, get one. Write down Rachel's blog. It's www.monica-dailydozen.com blogspot.com I'll give that to you again it's Monica's blog but that's what Rachel's using and she's in Ghana and she's blogging she's talking about what's going on for those of you who don't know or weren't aware of this Rachel how old is Rachel 15, 16 16 years old and is spending 2-3 months at Beacon House Orphanage in Ghana and her blogs are wonderful touching yesterday's blog talking about the wonder of an orange You know, she got to have an orange and it was a delight and a thrill. And she talked about how good God is because they were just having a conversation about food that they didn't have there in Ghana and and Rachel made a comment how she just, oh, I just, I miss oranges. I would love to have an orange. And she walked by the kitchen that night and the cook had cut up an orange. And and you need to read this again. It's www.monica-daily-dozen. Monica-dash, little dash, monica-daily-dozen.blogspot.com. Dot com, is it? Yeah, dot com. How's daily spelled? D-A-I-L-E-Y, and then dozen, D-O-Z-E-N. www.monica-dailydozen.blogspot.com Why am I, you know, touting what Rachel's doing? Because, and this should blow our minds, a 16-year-old girl said, I'm going to go. How much can Rachel really do? You know, two and a half months of living in Ghana. I mean, she'll have a good experience. I'm sure it'll be life-altering for her. But what can she do for those kids? She can love them. She can play with them. She can help wash them and feed them. And I point her out among all these big names, Bob Purse, Everett Swanson, G. Douglas Young, Rachel Daly. 
Because what Rachel is doing is every bit as much world impacting as the founders of these great organizations. Because they all started the exact same way. They said, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not going to wait for someone else to. I'm going to engage myself and be involved. And I'm I'm telling you, I, I probably should warn you, when you do that, God begins to get a hold of you and take you places you didn't think you'd go. It was back in 1987, I think. I shared this on a, on a Compassion Sunday a year or two ago. That I was sitting there watching one of those commercials. And, and they caught me off guard because they had Amy Grant show up first and was talking. And I, oh, it's Amy Grant, what's she doing? And, and then suddenly it was a Compassion International commercial. So it really wasn't fair. It was kind of a bait and switch. <laughs> And I sat watching that late at night in the apartment that Char and I were living in because we could no longer afford to rent the house we were renting. We're in this little apartment. And God said, you know what, why don't you sponsor one of those kids? Really? We had to move out of our house. I know that. Why don't you sponsor one of those kids? So we did. And then somehow it got into Cheryl's heart because, you know, it goes from me and then Cheryl gets it and she just takes off and there's no getting her back. Why don't we sponsor a child for every child God gives us? You know, right there, for me, that was birth control, you know. Why don't we do that? So we ended up sponsoring three kids because we had three kids. Now we have six kids. And God won't stop, you know. And my point is simply this. If you will just hand him a little bit. Some of you today, for the first time, I pray, will sponsor a child through compassion. Oh, I knew this was going to go to the money. Hey, it's not a kickback for me. We don't get anything out of it. Children get something out of it. Why don't you do that? But I will warn you, if you do that, he's going to get a hold of you, and you're going to be doing more than you thought you would do. Maybe not immediately. But you see, while God is concerned about the poor and the afflicted, He is also concerned about the formation of your heart, and He will keep forming and altering and changing. Rachel, Bob Everett, G. Douglas Young, these were all examples of people in whom God stirs up compassion. And that brings me to number four, a personal response. Verse 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement or discipline? I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will not do it again. Has anybody said this? I've been disciplined. I get it, Lord. So teach me now. Show me your ways. Let me tell you something. As a teaching pastor, there's something I learned years ago. I can teach. I get you. I love to. I get to encourage by the Word. I get to open up the Word sometimes you know, to explanation that, that surprises me, but it's always by His Spirit and by His guidance. But there's something... I cannot do. And possibly the most frustrating thing about being a pastor, unless you know what I'm talking about, I can't motivate change. I can preach my head off, and I almost have a couple of times. And have people still walk out the door no different than they came in. And it's frustrating. Because I want to change in the inside. You want to see an alteration. And what I've begun to realize is I have no power to do that, but God does. And he will often take my lamest Sunday of teaching, and that's the day he changes a heart. And for no other reason to tell me, see, Rick, it really wasn't you. He is 
amazing as an agent of change in our lives. Jesus will change us to the point that all we have to do is respond to Him. To pray, Lord, teach us. Lord, alter us, change us, lead us, use us. But if mankind... No, let's personalize it. If we remain unrepentant, that is, refusing to turn to Him and follow His lead... Elihu has this warning in verse 33. Shall he recompense on your terms because you have rejected? The word rejected, what he's saying is because you're unrepentant. You're calling him to do things your way, Job? For you must choose and not I, therefore, declare what you know. My friends, we can hear the statistics. In the time we've taken with this message, nearly 600 more children have died this morning 600 we can, now we can sit in shame and poverty over that we can go oh isn't that terrible that's just awful oh why did Rick preach so long you know <laughs> <laughs> or or we can choose today to do something about it I'm not going to let today go by I don't know how I can afford 38 bucks a month but you know what I it's one dinner it's one meal out We'll skip that this month. Gang, we can choose to do something about it. And here's the great news. We have the freedom to do so. We've been given the freedom to choose to engage. What do you mean? Elihu asks a rhetorical question back there in verse 31. He says, Has anyone said to God, I have borne chastisement? Yes. Someone rightly has said to God, I have borne chastisement. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. Jesus has borne the chastisement. Jesus has borne the suffering. Jesus made a rhetorical question literal because He in the whole mass of humanity has the right to honestly say, I have borne chastisement I have taken your discipline on my back. I have taken the punishment. Paul says, Romans 4.25, He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So that we can, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.2, so that we can walk in love. Just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself up for us. Let me see if I can explain what I'm trying to say here. Because Jesus took the chastisement, I am now free to respond with Christ-like compassion. See, if He hadn't, I wouldn't be free to do so. I would be doing it because I felt like I had to do something to save myself. And it would be about me. But because Jesus already did that, and because if you express faith in Jesus, you say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life, guess what? You've just been freed up. You don't owe, you don't have to do anything. Really? I love you, Lord. I want you to be Lord of my life. Great, you're saved. Done. And I don't, I don't have to do anything after that? Really? Really? Because you can't add to God's grace. And you can't take away from God's grace. It's His grace. He did everything that was required to be done. I don't have to do anything for God. I am free to do everything for God. Suddenly, my response to the poor and afflicted in the world is not in hopes that it makes me look good to God. It's because there's a need. And I have been freed up to do that. 
I have been freed up to serve. I have been freed up to give. I have been freed up to help. I have been freed up to do. And I am free from the guilt complex that plagues the nations. I'm free of the guilt complex. You know what? Don't respond this morning because you're like, well, I heard the statistics and that kind of upset me and I've got to do something to assuage my guilty conscience. No. You are free to help. Free to do something. In Mark's Gospel, when Mary anointed Jesus and Judas and the other boys all objected, Jesus is quoted as saying the following in Mark 14.7, You always have the poor with you. And... And only Mark adds this little caveat, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. I love that that's added. You always have the poor wish with you, and you can do something about it. You can serve. You can be a part of the solution. And then Jesus says, but you do not always have me. And here's why he said that. Because it really is all about him. Because honestly, without Jesus, I could give a rip about people who are poor. A little harsh, Pastor Rick. Hey, if there was no Jesus, if there was no God, I would be Mr. Evolution. You know, let the people, you know, uh, what, what is the big evolutionary phrase that's eluding me right now? It's the survival of the fittest. That's it. And I would be as fit as possible so that I would survive and I would get what I want to get out of this life and out of this world. But you see, Jesus does exist. And He did sacrifice Himself for me. And He did all that was required. And it is about Him. And if I've got Jesus' compassion, if I've got the Spirit of Christ in my life, in my heart, I can't sit back anymore. I have to do something. Jesus is God's answer to the cry of the afflicted. And it's Christ-like compassion that moves us to do what He's called us to do.